my story is long, but it has a happy ending, so that's what matters. Yeah, good, wonderful. And the other thing too is, and I love that you're sharing freely, um, but even after the fact, you know, if tomorrow you think, oh, I said that thing, I don't really want him to use that part of the story. Oh, no, no, I'm good. Ask me anything. <laughs> I have nothing to hide. Like I said, it's, for me, talking is healing. You are now listening to Undercurrents. My name is Ken Ogasawara, and I'm part of the communications and community engagement team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. This podcast is an experiment to find a new way to share the stories we are privileged to hear from our program participants, staff, volunteers, and others. Undercurrents is brought to you in part by Kindred Credit Union and the Kindred Charitable Fund, which seeks to inspire peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. This episode is about radical acceptance. So basically, the first time it happened, I went through a very nasty divorce. I met Maria, which is not her real name, at the MCC office in Toronto. We're sitting with Carol O'Neill, which is her real name, who is on staff as part of MCC's Restorative Justice Program. Maria is emotional before we've even begun the interview. But eventually, we get to her story. And when things got tough for me through my divorce, and I didn't want to say no to my kids because I wanted to be this amazing mom. Um... Maria started taking checks from the dental office she was working at and depositing them in her own account, using the money to pay her bills, send her kids to camp, and anything else she could throw money at to make her life easier. I made excuses, I justified it, and I thought, oh wow, this is probably, you know, life life is saving me from, you know, troubles. She thought she'd found some easy money, and for a while, it was. By the time she was caught, she had stolen close to $200,000 worth of fraudulent insurance checks. But she was caught, and she was convicted of multiple accounts of fraud. She was sentenced to two years in prison. After she was released, she rebuilt her life. She started a business installing windows and doors, but life served up a few more difficulties. So Maria did something she knew was a mistake. She took a job at a dentist's office. But then I justified it. I said, no, it's okay. I'm okay with that. I am not doing fraud. He's paying me $30 an hour. It's five minutes from home. I don't need the car. So I made excuses as to why I will be okay to work in that office. But clearly after three months when my dog got diagnosed with lymphoma and had four weeks to live for me, I was afraid to lose him. I took the checks to pay for his chemo. And here I am. Think of the phrase, justice has been served. What does that conjure in your mind? What do you think has happened when you hear those words? While you ponder this question, let's talk about restorative justice. Or I should say initially, the meaning of the word restore comes from a Latin word, uh, restore or restaurant. The person giving us this short lesson in Latin is Rod Friesen. This past summer, he was invited to Zambia to train correctional officers in an intensive course on restorative justice. So digging into the roots of this concept is fresh on his mind. Rod is the restorative justice program coordinator at MCC in Ontario. This is actually a reference to uh, the food that comes out of the restaurant, not the actual building. And essentially, the word restore comes from helping a weak or famished person feel upright again. 
helping a weak or famished person feel upright again. That may be the most eloquent imagery of restoration that I've ever heard. In essence, Rod is saying that when we have been harmed, or have caused harm, we are often emotionally, spiritually, even physically weakened by trauma, by anger, by grief, by shame. The goal of restorative justice is essentially to feed and nourish those affected so that we can stand upright and strong again. For Maria, the relationships most in need of repair are with her two now adult children. Because when you come home from jail, you want people to see that you're home, you love them, you want to be, but I never understood that they need their space too, they need to come around on their own time. And Carol was the one that worked with me on that and it happened. Carol was there when my daughter would block me. Carol was there when my daughter would say, I'll call you in two days. And I couldn't understand that, but Carol had a way of explaining that to me and I started understanding. I guess I can honestly say that I was probably selfish, which I never thought I was also. Just has a different meaning, you know, selfish is like when you don't want to share. But no, selfish is when my needs have to be met without thinking how other people's needs have to be met. The second time she went to prison, this time for three years, her children were in high school. During some of the most formative years of their young lives, Maria was in prison. She wasn't there to help with homework, make their lunches, attend their recitals. She missed her daughter's prom. A lot of Maria and Carol's conversations are around how Maria can acknowledge this harm and work toward restoring trust with them. The fact that they're angry with me, it's understandable. My son is a little bit different than my daughter. I think she has a lot of resentment for me because I really abandoned her when she was, and I mean abandoned, I went to jail when she was 16. Despite these challenges of regaining trust with her children, Maria seemed to be in a very positive place at the time I spoke with her, a time of growth and genuine excitement about this new stage in her life. And as it turns out, a lot of it hinged on two things, which was really one. It started with a shocking realization that she had been, for years, an angry person. I never thought I was angry because I'm always so nice and passionate and I will help any homeless in the street. But I must have been very resentful and angry because I blamed the whole system, I blamed my, whole hu my ex-husband, I blamed, you know, family responsibility court, I blamed... Through her time in prison programming, she came across a concept that would change her perspective from one of blaming to one of accountability. She called it radical acceptance. Maria explained that radical acceptance was about letting go of the past, of self-pity and of victimhood. It happened. Dwelling about it is not going to help you with anything. We're talking about it like, you know, how you feel sorry for yourself. You have to accept it and move forward from it. But simply letting go and moving forward is easier said than done, especially when coming out of prison. One of the tenets of restorative justice is community reintegration. This is where Carol comes in. For me, I just feel it's where I'm meant to be, and I, I appreciate every day of it. I love it. Carol is in her late 50s. She is a retired businesswoman, having worked for years with her husband, helping people with hoarding tendencies to declutter and downsize their lives. She retired from that business and fell in love with MCC's restorative justice program after volunteering in one of the programs several years ago. 
She's warm and friendly, but with an air of someone who's had many difficult conversations. I asked Carol what some of the greatest challenges were in reintegrating into society, and her answer surprised me, because it was partly a technical one. Um, I have a guy that, you know, they push them to get a job, which is fine. When people are released from prison, they will often have programming that they are required to continue when they are outside. This is, in theory, a very good idea, but it often conflicts with other requirements that they have to meet. But they're pushing them to get a job at the same time that they're still making them take sessions. And you can't have a job and take Friday afternoons off for the next six weeks. So what do you want me to do? Um, and quite often the answer is, well, you need to do both. Carol sees her role as one of breaking down the whole situation into bite-sized problems to deal with one at a time. This has worked very well for Maria, starting first with the trauma of abusive relationships that she'd been in. And again, I didn't think it was traumatic, that was normal. Then, addressing employment. By the time I saw her, I said, Carol, I have a job. <laughs> and then moving on to her health and relationships with her children. Now, this was all well and good, but as I step back to look at the bigger picture, all of Carol and Maria's work was based on something that is elusive for many coming out of prison. A relationship based on trust. In this case, between a social service worker who has seen countless so-called offenders, and a so-called offender who has seen too many social service workers already. How can trust grow authentically there? Maria takes us back to when she and Carol first met. Things can happen. And then one night, someone said that there's so-and-so coming into the halfway house. And I just happened to be there that night. And I'll be honest with you, like I swear to you, when Carol walked in and she sat right next to me, there was that energy. And just the way she presented herself and what she had to say. When she was, when the session was over, I, I asked her for her card and I said, you'll definitely be hearing from me. I dug a little deeper with Maria. Why does this relationship work so well? Um, just it's like a safe place. I'm able to talk. She doesn't judge. She, she's been helping me with a lot of skills that I kind of know, but haven't put to use when it comes to my family. Very non-judgmental. Tells me both sides. Tells me when I'm wrong. And how I again and again, the same things came up. It's very honest. It's very open. It's not fearful. It's not judgmental. For many people released after the sentence, the prospect of returning to the outside world is daunting. Going back to their own community may not be an option. Bridges have been burned, or else stigma, ostracism, and maybe even violence await them. But then again, going to a new community is isolating and lonely, and there is a constant fear of the past being found out. Over the span of my conversation with Maria, it became clear that Carol's value was in being one of the few in the community who bothered to support Maria and those like her coming out of prison. Although Carol is doing this in a professional capacity, the effect is profoundly personal. To Maria, Carol is both a representative of and a bridge to the community. When I asked Maria about what she values about Carol, Maria doesn't mention anything about theory of change, nor does she extol the virtues of dialectic behavior treatment therapy, or sing the praises of the theoretical framework for community reintegration. What is important? Carol is open. Carol doesn't judge. 
Carol listens. She's not fearful. There's a safe space. In other words, Carol is practicing radical acceptance of Maria, of her past, her present, and future. Countless studies have shown that isolation, shame, and stigma can contribute to a higher chance of reoffending behavior in returning citizens. This fact is both uncomfortable and hopeful to me. Uncomfortable because isolation, shame, and stigma come from me, you, the community, and society at large. I find it hopeful because it shows how influential we the community can be in the successful reintegration of returning citizens. And as difficult or uncomfortable as it might feel, we can start by taking Carol's lead. We can be more open. We can be less judgmental. We can listen more. We can create safe spaces. We can practice radical acceptance. If you would like to try practicing radical acceptance in a new way, MCC's restorative justice programs are always in need of new volunteers to help support and hold accountable those that the rest of society would rather not. Visit mcco.ca slash rj for more details. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please write to us at podcast.mcco.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you to my assistant producer, Broderick Visser, for helping to pull all the pieces together for this episode. Our theme song and other original music is by the one and only Brian McMillan. A huge thank you to Kindred Credit Union and the grant we received from the Kindred Charitable Fund for helping to bring these stories to life. The fund is one of the many ways Kindred Credit Union invests hundreds of thousands of dollars each year in communities across Ontario, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous initiatives that range from affordable housing to food security, to refugee and newcomer supports. Please subscribe and like on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. I'm Kanagasawara. Have a great rest of your day.